0: the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Dr. Kenneth Rogoff, Professor of Economics and Thomas D. Cabot Professor of Public Policy at Harvard University. From 2001 to 2003, Dr. Rogoff was Chief Economist at the International Monetary Fund. He's a Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and is a member of the National Academy of Sciences, as well as the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Dr. Rogoff's books include Foundations of International Macroeconomics, the Standard Graduate Text in the Field, This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial Folly, and most recently, The Curse of Cash, How Large Denomination Bills Aid Crime and Tax Evasion and Constrain Monetary Policy, which just came out in an updated paperback edition. Dr. Rogoff, welcome to the show.
1: Michael, thank you for having me.
0: You know, I'd like to start with the book that introduced me to your work, This Time is Different, which came out in 2009, shortly after our most recent international financial crisis. Um, It had a major impact and was nominated for and won a a bunch of awards. And, you know, former Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke called it an extraordinary piece of work. And, well, my endorsement probably doesn't carry quite as much weight. I would certainly agree with that. So I'll take it. So, maybe you could tell me how this book came about, and why you and your co-author, Carmen Reinhardt, decided to explore this long history of financial folly.
1: Well, we actually started working on the book seven years uh, before we published it. Um we were working together at the IMF. and both of us were interested in financial crisis. My co-author, uh, Carmen Reinhardt, is an extraordinary economist in many dimensions, but especially in her use of data manipulation of large data sets, collecting large data sets. I had actually done quite a bit in my life, but a pale shadow compared to her. Uh, And I had worked on financial crisis on the theory side. This is looking at our academic work. Of course, we were at the IMF. Uh, And uh, as we were at the IMF, we were realizing there were these gaps in our knowledge and trying to understand what was going on in Argentina and Brazil and Turkey and other countries. Um, simple things like you couldn't find data on domestically issued debt. That might just sound nuts at the International Monetary Fund, but actually, it did not exist. Not you couldn't get long uh, time series. So we set about very trying to systematically put together this data set that is perhaps a hundred times the size of anything anyone had done till then on financial history, uh, macroeconomic history data sets. And uh, you know, it took a long time. Proceeded to write the book. And we did uncover, for example, data on domestic debt, which uh, the IMF later produced its own. It's obviously very important. Uh, we also uncovered data on international housing prices, And we began to write papers and circulate them maybe a couple of years before the financial crisis, trying to get comments from scholars. We got comments from around the world looking at our measures of default dates and uh, other things. And it was really just a coincidence that it came out at the time of the financial crisis. It takes years to write something like this. We knew there would be more financial crises. I'm not gonna tell you that I was smart enough to short the stock market, you know, just before it happened.
0: what were what were the main commonalities you found in your research on you know all these past financial crises are are there any factors or conditions that you found always seem to precede a financial crisis um
1: predicting financial crises which by here you know we could talk about government debt crises, but a lot of the book was about banking crises. It's extremely hard. You can tell something's gonna give someday, but when it's gonna happen, who knows? I think it's pretty clear China's gonna have a problem at some point, but when it's gonna happen, really hard to tell. Uh, On the other hand, I think the much more striking finding we had is when you have a financial crisis, the characteristics of what happens afterwards have a lot of commonalities. And maybe an analogy is to having a heart attack. It's actually very hard to predict. Uh, You can go to the doctor and look perfectly fit and have an attack the next week. You can go to the doctor and they say, you've got to stop smoking. You've got to lose weight. You've got to exercise. And nothing happens for 30 years. So it's it's very hard to predict. But once it happens, uh, you know, uh, there are various measures, but a, a lot of things in common. So typically they happen after a big asset price bubbles, particularly in the housing market, and big uh, booms in bank lending. Banks are often at the center of crises. Um, you, and after it happens, uh, you tend to see very deep, long-lasting recessions, and a really striking thing is they tend to be very slow recoveries. In fact, you know, we found eight to 10 years in uh, really deep crises to get back to where you started in per capita GDP. When we wrote the book, this was really radical. It's not what Fed thought, it's not what uh, Wall Street economists thought, and it's not what most academic economists thought. And we were sort of, you know, uh, people said all sorts of reasons why it was ridiculous. Uh, and then at some point, uh, people looked more. And while well, I won't say it's not debated, it's much the idea that deep systemic banking crises lead to very slow, painful recoveries is much more widely agreed on now.
0: Right. Our first sponsor today is Dollar Shave Club, the smarter choice. Get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door with Dollar Shave Club. You know, unless you're in the Southern Hemisphere, and I know most of you aren't, it's summer, which thanks to climate change means it's not just hot, but hotter than ever. So you don't want to walk around all hairy and sweaty, but you also don't want to pay Ridiculous prices for, uh, I don't know, 37 blade adamantium coated razors or whatever gimmicky wallet busting stuff, you know, who's trying to push on you. And that's what I love about Dollar Shave Club. You get a great close shave at a price that doesn't break the bank. Plus, it's really convenient to have blades and their excellent shave butter delivered right to your door automatically as opposed to having to remember to buy blades and shaving cream and then go out to the store and get that stuff and probably paying way too much in the process. And for a limited time, new members get their first month, the executive razor with the two of their Dr. Carver shave butter for only $5 with free shipping. And after that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. Now, in your first month's box, you get this great weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of their shave butter. After your first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price. No hidden fees, no commitments. You can cancel anytime you like, but you're not going to want to cancel, trust me. You can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com tpg. That's dollar club slash TPG. When you were doing your research and all this analysis for the book, was there anything that jumped out that sort of surprised you that you didn't expect?
1: Well, I'd say we had these, you know, you it's a long, tedious process. So we had these moments of almost black humor. For example, um, our book was written before the Greek uh, crisis, but we, we noticed that Greece had been in default on its foreign debt over half of its years in existence. And that was just you know, it was hard to grasp. Um, we uh, also, you know, just noticing how much some of the European countries that we think of as advanced countries had defaulted when they were emerging markets. Spain had defaulted 13 times uh, over its history. It's still the record holder, although Venezuela is breathing down its neck. Uh, France, nine times. Uh, so so there, there were certainly some fascinating things. Or another thing that was interesting was before we had paper money, which made inflation very easy, governments were pretty good at it, at clipping coins, recalling coins, and then issuing them uh, with less silver content. We have this beautiful chart in the book called the March to fiat currency, paper currency, where we show the silver content of coins just fading away over the centuries. So there, there, were, it, there, were, there were certainly, you know, these moments of profound satisfaction. Finding the housing data was a big thing because I called Robert Schiller, who is a huge expert on housing, done wonderful work on the U.S., and asked, where can I get international data? And he told me he didn't know. And when we uncovered that, that was really a big breakthrough because housing crises are at the center of financial crises. And we're able to give empirical markers of how it looks.
0: You know, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about data as a social scientist. Maybe it's uh, also, it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating to me because I know comparing contemporary data from different countries can be difficult, but you looked at you know, hundreds of years of data, which had to be incredibly challenging. And so I'd love to know what some of the, the major obstacles you had to overcome were in your in your data collection and, and data analysis for this, this massive project.
1: Well, sort of there are two separate issues. One is when you're looking at historical data, uh, you know, it's much less reliable. Uh, so, for example, you know, you want to do uh, estimation techniques that are somewhat robust to that Uh, We emphasize in some of our work looking at the median uh, result rather than the mean result it's a way of throwing out outliers. But basically, um, we wrote our book just as the internet was becoming spread enough, where, of course, it was already in the United States and countries like England, but where we could find uh, books in libraries in Venezuela, deal with rare book dealers in the Philippines, and we're able to fill in a lot of gaps. And We couldn't fill in everything, but we filled in a lot. Now, yes, the data are far more, you know, uh, unreliable than when you look at modern data, not that modern GDP data is all that great. But the thing about financial crises is they leave these huge footprints like dinosaurs that are so striking and always in the same direction that you get a pretty good idea of what's going on. You can't really compare was a crisis in Peru in the 19th century worse than a crisis in Peru in the 20th century you just don't have the data but can you tell that output collapsed can you tell that they defaulted on their debt can you tell uh, that there was a huge uh, drop in asset prices things like that it's very striking I, I I've never worked on any topic where the data just always pointed in the same direction. I mean, If you know somebody's had a banking crisis, you really don't have to guess what happened to housing prices. You don't have to guess what happened to the stock market. You don't have to guess what happened to unemployment. You really get the direction right, and it looks big. Uh, But of course, doing precise comparisons across countries is virtually impossible. Even today, it's difficult, and these long-dated historical episodes even more so.
0: So, based on all the research you've done and your, you know, your your years of experience, uh, what what are the lessons that you feel that policymakers should take away about, uh, well, ideally avoiding or at least maybe minimizing the severity of financial crises? Well,
1: <clears throat> I think one of the toughest things for policymakers is to admit there's a problem. There's a tendency to say, well, it won't be so bad. We'll grow our way out of it. Things will get a lot better. And a lot of the policymakers did this in 2009 and 2010, they said, well, the the forecasts are things are going to get a lot better. Those were the Federal Reserve forecasts. Those were the European Central Bank forecasts. Those were the IMF forecasts. And so you say, well, it's really painful to try to do any deep restructuring or do anything hard. Let's just wait. It'll go away. And I think in many cases, uh, policymakers need to take a more aggressive attitude to writing down debt. Obviously, in the European crisis, Greece, Portugal, even Ireland should have had their debts written down. It would have been cheap money for the Germans and others. The European economy would have grown faster. It would have paid off many times over. In the case of the United States, it would have made sense to have relief targeted at subprime homeowners. They were absolutely the center of the problem. And yes, there—you know—it needs to be sophisticated. John Genekopoulos at Yale, Marty Feldstein at Harvard had good ideas. But using uh, using federal money to subsidize to facilitate these debt write-downs would have helped. A lot. The debt is at the heart of the problem. Dealing with debt, recapitalizing the banks is the best way forward. But it's very painful. We did do a decent job recapitalizing the banks. I mean, I I feel it would have been there were things that could have been much better, but we did the Europeans did not they're still drowning in problems because they let these bad loans fester. So the banks can't make healthy good loans. You can't get the economy going. That's certainly a central lesson. And then of course, you have to realize that the crisis is gonna last for a long time. So it's a great time to do infrastructure projects and Reinhardt and I emphasize that everywhere. Doesn't matter that the money might not get spent for three years, that's a great idea. Uh, Faster if you can. Monetary policy should be hyper-aggressive, not the time to worry about inflation. I wrote that in 2008, and a lot of my central banking uh, friends who know my work on central bank independence thought, you know, have you gone crazy? We're, we're all about stopping inflation. And I said, not now. Having a few percent elevated inflation would be much better than what's going to happen. But again, in the middle of the crisis, it's very tempting to say, let's just do the most orthodox policies. Let's wait. Let's play it safe. And sometimes uh, that's just not the right thing to do.
0: Our second sponsor today is ZipRecruiter. You know, good help, it's hard to find. You know, I was lucky when I had the idea to start the Politics Guys because I knew that Jay was going to be an awesome co-host and and more recently I knew that Trey would be a great addition to the team, but most people aren't in that position. There aren't a lot of, you know, J's and Treys just kind of kicking around. And that's where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to a hundred plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. So you can get your own very own J or Trey. And That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. There's no juggling emails or calls to the office. You just have to screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. All you have to do, just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. Why no S? I don't know. It's a lot more efficient. But ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. Politics Guy, and you can post jobs for free. Check it out. Do you think that uh, Dodd-Frank was at least uh, a step in the right direction that maybe helped out or made it less likely that we're going to see uh, the sort of severe financial crisis that we saw in 2008, 2009?
1: Well, it certainly made it less likely we'd see the kind of crisis we saw in 2008 and 2009, but it's incredibly cumbersome. The Dodd-Frank bill itself is a couple thousand pages, but there's all sorts of references to other uh, laws, other uh, regulations and edicts other agencies have to enact So the whole thing is closer to 30,000 pages. And I don't know anyone who both is competent to understand it and has actually read it. I I much prefer the suggestion of Inad Mahdi and Martin Helwig. Uh, They have a book about this, about requiring banks to raise much more money through equity issuance and less through uh, borrowing bonds. Uh, John Vickers and the Vickers Commission in the U.K. had the same conclusion. You could have a much better regulation where banks had a lot more skin in the game. And there's the Edmati and uh, Helwig do an especially good job at sort of explaining a lot of the hocus pocus and smoke and mirrors banks throw up to confuse people that they need to borrow 98% of the money they lend and speculate with. But that, that's really, I think, as a long run, a much better solution. I think most economists agree on that. Uh, Dodd-Frank has the problem that you sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater. You put in so many regulations that the banks can't lend as much as they should, and then the economy goes. Uh, Re, you know, starts growing again even slower than it might. Right.
0: Now whenever I teach economic policy, I, I talk about uh, Hyman Minsky's view that stability is inherently Destabilizing because the longer good times last, the more we relax, which in turn lays the groundwork for the next crisis. And so I'm wondering does that mean that regardless of what we might do in the immediate aftermath of a crisis, does that mean that financial crises are more or less inevitable given human nature? Well,
1: Hyman Minsky was a brilliant man, and you very eloquently you know, put his thesis forward. I, I think that financial crises are inevitable. They may more in uh, the way they are. For example, fixed exchange rates are something, a thing of the past at the moment, and maybe we won't have those kind of crises for a while. We had the gold standard had its own crises. So it morphs, but human nature doesn't. And one of the things I noticed in this crisis, in the run-up to the crisis, and again, I won't tell you that I knew the day it was coming, although Reinhardt and I did have a paper in 2007 already showing our data and how the run-up to financial crises looked a lot like what was going on in the U.S., but you know, we were scholarly and cautious. I I did go around the world uh, meeting financial regulators, banking regulators, people in finance ministries, and I said, boy. look at these debt levels that are climbing up. And I was particularly pointing at private debt, by the way. Doesn't this worry you? And they say it does. But, you know, our hands are tied. And I say, how so? And they say, well, you know, a couple of years ago, we tried to Tighten regulations, uh, you know. Do it so borrowing built up more slowly. Banks could be more leveraged, and the banks would call the legislators, uh, senators, Congress people who were wh- whatever the equivalent was in their countries. They'd lobby them, and then they'd get a call from the senators saying, "You know, look, things are going great. What are you doing?" And you know, just saying, "Well, there's a 10 percent chance a meteor is going to hit the earth." They go, "Well, there's a 90 percent chance it's going to be great. Leave them alone." And it, it's very hard. It's a lot of human nature. But because we just had a crisis, I don't think the risks are nearly as acute now. But will we have one in the next, uh, you know, 20, 30 years? Very likely.
0: You know, I, I want to ask one more question about that before we, we move on to your, your latest book. And that's, you know, some people would say that's exactly the problem with uh, the political system. And so that's where the Fed should ideally step in because they can move much more quickly, and not have to worry about some of those political concerns. And there were some people who say that a lot of what happened could have been averted if the Fed had raised interest rates sooner. What's it, the taking away the punch bowl before the party gets too too wild, I think is the phrase. I mean, is there anything to that?
1: Well, of course they should have raised interest rates sooner, uh, taking into account the asset bubble, but better still, uh, they could have been a voice for firmer regulation. There was a lot of deregulation, uh. Particularly of subprime housing, starting at the end of the '90s and the early 2000s, when I was at the IMF, I heard some of the rationale for it. Uh, people were saying, "Look, the rich are making a lot of money on housing prices going up. Uh, why not make it easier for poor people to borrow so that they can benefit too?" It was actually intended. There were good intentions behind it, but. Uh, They didn't, you know, apply it carefully enough. I I think it is very difficult for anyone in this situation of a boom to push back really hard. The Fed did not do a good job, but to sort of lay all the blame on Alan Greenspan is ridiculous. I think uh, someone else in his place might well have succumbed to the same thing. It's very hard when everything's booming to say we need to tighten regulations. But they did do that in Canada because Canada it had a big fiscal crisis in the 90s that had built a lot of financial problems. They remembered it. And they had much tighter regulations on housing borrowing. It didn't spare them a pretty bad time in the downturn, but they didn't have the, the banking crisis that we did. Uh, Sweden also did better again they had a crisis in the 90s in recent memory, their own banking and fiscal crisis. So uh, it, it is possible. Uh, the, the Fed should have done a better job. There are many ways it could have done a better job. But I think, um, you know, I, I hear a lot of backseat drivers and uh, I will only say uh, prominent economists, op-ed writers who say it would be so much better if things were done my way. Well, that's really easy to say three years later, but I invite them to be put in the job and making the decisions and running things. And it's you know, it's not I, it's not so easy.
0: Yeah. yeah. Let's let's move on to your, your latest book, the, the Curse of Cash. Now, my initial thought when it was first published was, was something along the lines of, why write a book about problems with paper money when paper money's on its way out? Now, now, maybe I'm working off, I don't know, a bad assumption here, but so you can tell me, why did you decide to write this book?
1: Well, I actually first wrote about the topic. Twenty years ago, and went through uh, you know a long. I, I wrote a pretty serious academic paper about it twenty years ago, uh, and uh, I think there were a number of things that pushed me to write a book. Um, one was that my argument didn't seem to be winning the day, and there are a lot of subtleties that I couldn't treat in an academic article that I felt I needed a full book to do, having to do with uh, privacy. Um, what happens if you have a natural disaster? to try to look at these things more deeply. But also, uh, when we hit the zero level on policy interest rates, which we did in the US, all across the world, still a big problem, uh, that turns out to be tied into paper money. So the book really has two parts, they're related, but they're different. One is about how you're right, Michael, the use of cash is declining. In the legal economy, it's rapidly declining. It's under 10% of the value of transactions already, probably be under 5% in just a few years, and under 1% in 10 to 15 years. But the supply of money, mostly in $100 bills, is exploding. Now, um, do you happen to have any $100 bills on you at the moment? You
0: know, I do not, in
1: fact. Yeah, well, I mean, I can ask a big room of that. And even if it's a rich, uh, you know, rich people, not many raise their hands. And the average American, uh, they're forty, you know, they there's they're four thousand four hundred dollars for every man, woman, and child circulating, about eighty percent in hundreds, and maybe forty percent of it's abroad, but that still leaves, you know, two, three thousand uh worth of cash mostly in hundreds. And and they the Fed and the Treasury know. It's not in legal use. They do lots of surveys. It's not in bank vaults. It's not in cash registers. It's being used for tax evasion and crime. It's very convenient to have hundreds and fifties. If you watch uh, you know, the great television show Breaking Bad or Narcos, they show this, and it's pretty accurate. Uh, it's easy to hide or smuggle. And it's a problem all over the world. Uh, Europe has 500 euro notes. Australia, Canada have hundred dollar bills. And so I argue that if they regulated cash better, yes, uh, it would be true that the Fed would make less money off printing it. They printing hundred dollar bills costs almost nothing, and they can sell them for a hundred dollars. But they'd make back much more in uh, reducing tax evasion. Even a few percent reducing tax evasion would uh, bring back most of it and also the cost of crime. Uh, so part of the book is about that. And th- there are a lot of subtleties. I think a lot of people listen to that and kind of think they, you know, have a gut answer to it. But there there are actually a lot of questions around how you do it. How do you do it in a way that protects ordinary people, that it doesn't affect normal people? And of course, if I took away 50s and 100s, mo- most people would only know about it from the newspaper. It, it wouldn't affect their lives.
0: Yeah, I know it seems to me that a number of reviewers, for some reason, got the idea that that you were calling for the uh, elimination of all cash, but but that's not that's not really correct, right? You were focused on specifically, mostly at least, on these larger denomination bills.
1: No, it's not. It just shows you the modern world uh, there, there are p- people. Uh, there's even one person who reviewed it uh, for the FT who clearly didn't read page one of it and was writing, "How will I give money to a beggar if there's no cash?" And, Yeah, just ridiculous hyperbole. Um, There's a world of difference between having a cash light society and having less cash. The legal economy is going to less cash. The cash is being used for tax evasion and crime, and you have to have a safety valve. Uh, You don't want to, you know, tighten down on everything. But if somebody's buying a five million dollar apartment in New York or you know buying a hundred thousand dollars worth of used cars every week uh, you know I think that tips the balance between where you want to have freedom and where you want ha- want to have regulation and I state that very clearly uh, So, But, you know, like any lobby, uh, the gun control lobby will say, well, if you ban semi-automatic weapons, pretty soon we won't have hunting rifles. And I think the more intelligent of these uh, people said, well, if you ban $100 bills, it's a slippery slope. Eventually, there'll be no cash. But uh, that's absurd hyperbole. I think the countries that have fewer large denomination notes, like the UK, it works better.
0: So, so who's pushing back against this? I mean, to me, the, the way you describe it, it seems like almost a, a no-brainer. But, but clearly, it it hasn't happened. And and so, why why is that? Why do you feel like there's opposition to this?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of the opposition is. I I think from, you know, you can get opposition to just about anything, a very vocal opposition on the internet to just about any uh, position. Uh, But I think a lot of it comes from the the gun lobby types. Uh, There are a lot of people who wrote to me sort of openly said they're engaged in illicit activity. But. People like it, and it would be terrible if they couldn't do what they do. Uh, The I think the Federal Reserve and the Treasury have their head in the sand on this one. I've certainly, you know, spoken at the Treasury on the book and spoken to people in the Federal Reserve, and you know, they they um, they don't want to rock the boat because they say it's not a. They probably in their gut think it's not a big enough issue. But if you look at the numbers in my book, it's a very big issue. And again, we're only talking about half the. The book about uh, the part about uh, why it would pay to make it a little more difficult to buy $5 million apartments or $50,000 cars in cash. Um, But I I do think it's just a no brainer. And I think it'll happen. Uh, I just don't know how long it'll take. Now,
0: now how would that sort of thing happen in in practice? Would it require legislation from Congress or or could uh, the Fed and the Treasury Department just essentially start printing or stop printing as many large denomination bills? Would it be that simple?
1: country's different. Uh, the uh, Federal Reserve has some regulatory power, but it mainly lies in the hands of the Treasury. The Treasury could print a $1,000 bill today if it felt like it. It could do it without asking anyone. Uh, in fact, the U.S. used to have a $1,000 bill. They stopped being printed in the 1944. It was used mainly for big real estate transactions, interbank transactions. It wasn't nearly the big deal that the $100 bill is interestingly Nixon decided to get rid of the hundred and the 500 because he noticed that they were being used for crime and didn't seem to be used for much else and uh, but the treasury could go in the other direction uh, they I'm sure the treasury secretary loves having his name uh, written on all the hundred dollar bills you may not have noticed but the treasury secretary signs them uh, and might not like withdrawing them from circulation but Um, Yeah, you want to study it first. I don't recommend just doing this overnight, Uh, look at all the angles. This is something to have a study commission on, but the treasury could do it on its own. In different countries, it's different, but uh, typically it's done by the treasury and the Federal Reserve. Now, you may know India did this, uh, where the prime minister uh, actually phased out their two largest notes overnight. I think Prime Minister uh, Modi's done a lot of great things in India. I don't think this was particularly well done. My book says you should take five to seven years uh, when you, even after you take the decision to phase the bills out to avoid collateral damage, to do things smoothly. And I think the Indian case uh, proved that, although it seems to have been politically popular anyway. But I think, for example, Australia has has a commission looking at getting rid of their hundreds and perhaps their fifties, they may take action on this. There are other countries like Iceland who've talked about it or, or the, and, and Eurozone's getting rid of their 500 very slowly, but they're stopping uh, printing it.
0: And so given kind of the, the layout of the, the winners and the losers, it seems like the main the main losers are people who are doing illegal things. And the only really pro argument is sort of, well, I don't want the government tracking my financial transactions or something like that uh, this, this has kind of, I guess, an air of inevitability, at least one would, one would hope maybe. So I I guess I'll put you on the spot and ask if you'd be willing to make a prediction. Uh, how long do you expect it would be before say a $20 bill or a $50 bill is as rare as say a $500 bill is today, which there are still some, but they're not being printed of course.
1: Well, I think, Um, If we're looking at the rest of the world, the other advanced countries, this is going to come within 10 years. The United States and the Eurozone will be among the last to move uh, simply because the stakes are so high for them in terms of being these global currencies, uh, global reserve currencies. But I mean, I think for the U.S. it won't be more than 20 years. I'm hoping it'll be much faster. By the way, they're always talking about having a $200 bill and a $500 bill. They know there's been inflation. They talk about it. So there's not only the battle of when the hundreds uh, go out, but prevent your sort of whack-a-mole with these ideas of having bigger ones. But I'm guessing a couple decades in the United States. Uh, at some point, just nobody's going to be using them in legal transactions. It's already the case. I played around with using hundreds quite a bit in writing the book to get a feel of how different people reacted. And, you know, in some places it's natural, but most, they look at it, they look at you, they kind of know. There's probably an 80 percent chance something's not quite right of how you got it. Uh, didn't pay your taxes, you know, drugs, something. Uh, but it's, okay, the bank will take it. In another 10 years, they're going to look at you and they're going to know there's a 99 chance that that's true. And I think as that moves, you'll reach a tipping point where you'll see a lot more call for action. You
0: know, I, I know we're running a little short on time, so I just have one final question for you. Uh, a lot of people are. I would say, intimidated and confused by international finance and economics. And, you know, short of going to grad school and reading your foundations of international macroeconomics, uh, do you have any suggestions for for listeners who would like to become better informed and more knowledgeable in the area, whether it's, you know, books, specific authors, or any other information resources?
1: Uh, Well, I mean, they're they're sort of, you know, it's sort of hard to take in one swoop, Uh, but there's certainly, you know, been many. Uh, great books written over the years, uh, L- *The Lords of Finance* about the Great Depression uh, is, I think, a good book about international finance for people who aren't economists. There's actually an adult comic book I like a lot by Michael Goodwin called *Economics* uh, that teaches uh, everything you should have learned in college about economics with a, you know, this adult comic book. I, it has a point of view, but. There, 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 are, there are a lot of good things out there. The Economist magazine writes beautifully. They take a strong point of view, but they write well. I try to get my children to read that. Not that successfully, but uh, I have students who do.
0: All right. Well, thanks. I really appreciate those recommendations. And on that note, we will close. Dr. Kenneth Rohef, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Uh, thank you, Michael.
0: That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors. Dollar Shave Club, where new members get the first month of the executive razor with a tube of their Dr. Carver's shave butter for only five bucks. With free shipping to get that, go to dollarshaveclub.com slash TPG. And ZipRecruiter, where Politics Guys listeners can post jobs for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. We also hope you'll consider joining our Politics Guys Insiders Program, where supporting the show financially comes with exclusive extras like special updates, more commentary, additional episodes, and lots more. You can check it out and sign up at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash politicsguys, or by going to politicsguys.com and clicking on the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending a single dime, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. And leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes is also a big help. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. The show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.